All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day two of Pain Week 2018. Hope everyone's having a great day of courses so far. And we got a long day ahead and week of courses coming up. Um, so I want to get started with this one today. Um, Pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain, sciatica my ass, which will be presented by Dr. Colleen Fitzgerald. Thank you. Can everyone hear me okay? No. How about now? Is that better? Yeah? Good? Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you um, to all the coordinators and Pain Week uh, for the opportunity to be here. I also, like Dr. Asani, I represent the International Pelvic Pain Society. Um, I actually am from Chicago, so I'm at Loyola University in Chicago, and my specialty is physical medicine and rehabilitation, but I have a really unique appointment there because I, I'm actually housed in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So because of my interest in pelvic pain and also pelvic girdle pain, as I'll explain to you, I actually work directly with my colleagues there, and it's been really fun uh, to work directly with them to get the pregnant referrals, the postpartum referrals, um, and I think that it allows for that collaboration that we talked about um, a little earlier today, the easy collaboration of seeing patients together. We have three multidisciplinary clinics at our institution. One we call Mother's Wellness, specific to pregnancy and postpartum. Another specific to uh, chronic pelvic pain. And then another multidisciplinary clinic where we look at pelvic floor disorders of various kinds. So I'm fortunate as a physiatrist to be involved in all of those things. And today, I wanted to present to you this concept. And I hope that my title's not too irreverent for the group, but one of the things I like to teach the, the students and the residents is that true sciatica in pregnancy really doesn't exist. And so hopefully I'm going to present to you what we mean by that. When patients say, I have sciatica, what does that mean? Um, and, and we'll go through the different slides to uh, present to you the evidence that supports that notion. So just in terms of disclosures, I'm an editor for Up to Date. I do have funding on a grant from the NIDDK, and I'm the current vice president uh, for the International Pelvic Pain Society. So today we, what we want to do is to describe the impact and the prevalence of what we call pelvic girdle pain in the pregnancy and postpartum period. So I'm going to stick with this population today. We're not talking about some of the chronic pelvic pain groups that we described in the previous lecture. Uh, pelvic girdle pain, if you look at the literature, is actually equals musculoskeletal pain. So when we use that term, and that term was defined by the Europeans, it's not a common term we use in the United States, but if you look to the literature, that's actually the term that you have to search on PubMed when you want to understand this process. Um, I'm going to present to you some of the musculoskeletal anatomy and the anatomic changes that occur during this life stage of pregnancy and postpartum, and some of the proposed mechanisms in the etiology of pelvic girdle pain. Because honestly, we really don't know for sure. We say a lot of things to patients about why, but we really don't have firm evidence about the etiology that surrounds this pain presentation. I'm going to outline to you the differential diagnosis as we, uh, we see these patients. The physical exam, which by far and away is the easiest thing I think we all can learn as practitioners to really rule in this problem. And then some of the diagnostic workup I think about when I have a patient that maybe presents a little bit more complex, you know, with more complexity. And then I'm going to highlight to you some of the rehabilitation and other treatment approaches in the management of pregnancy-related pelvic girdle pain. So what is the pelvic girdle? So basically, it's pain experienced um, between pelvic girdle pain itself between the iliac crest and the gluteal fold, 
particularly in the region of the sacroiliac joint. The pain may radiate into the posterior thigh as it's defined and can also occur in conjunction with pain in the pubic symphysis region. And this is really the key, is that it's movement-based pain. So the endurance capacity for standing, walking, and sitting is profoundly diminished. So if you have a patient that comes in and she's saying that her pain is worse with sit to stand or with rolling in bed, these types of motions, then we're thinking automatically this is pelvic girdle pain or musculoskeletal pain. Now, sciatica, um, I had to really I look at this. It's just, it's just a term that basically means leg pain. But depending on what, where you go to review this definition, you'll sometimes see it used to describe a set of symptoms around the sciatic nerve. But truly sciatica, when we say sciatica, it just means leg pain. And, and the etiology behind that could be a whole differential diagnosis. Okay. Um, the anatomy itself, the posterior view of the pelvis, this is just to remind ourselves, this is the sacrum. This is the ilium, and when we're talking about the sacroiliac joint, which is, uh, I'll give you a hint, the most common number one diagnosis in our differential diagnosis, this is where we see it posteriorly. And as we look superiorly at the pelvis, we see that the pelvis is a ring, and that's often why patients, when they present, will have both posterior and anterior pain. The sacroiliac uh, articulation itself is a true joint. It has, as I previously mentioned, both the sacral and iliac side. There's actually hyaline cartilage on the sacral side. It's very, very thin, but it's present. And on the iliac side, there's a fibrocartilaginous component, and that's why this joint really doesn't move much, unlike other joints in the body. It is considered a true synovial joint, especially at the inferior aspect, which you can see here. And the articulation itself is supported by a capsule, by multiple ligaments, and of course by muscles. And keep in mind, and I think why we get confused about the differential diagnosis in this patient population, is that this joint is also primarily innervated by S1. And that too is the primary innervation, as you know, of the sciatic nerve. Um, the pubic symphysis is a little bit different. It's a non-synovial amphiarthrodial joint. It has an intrapubic disc in the middle. Um, moves very little, actually. In pregnancy, it probably moves the most. See if I can figure out this. There we go. Um, there are ligaments that surround this joint as well, just like the sacroiliac joint. So inferior, suprapubic, anterior, and posterior. It's why maybe some of your patients complain of that what they call round ligament pain. But keep in mind, round ligament pain typically comes and goes. It's not associated with movement, but yet associated with growth in the second trimester. So it's a very different type of pain. There are fascial connections that occur um, with this joint in particularly. So anteriorly with the rectus abdominis fascia, posteriorly it diffuses into the intrapelvic abdominal wall fascia. And interestingly, this joint is also innervated sacrally. So we, we commonly think of it as being innervated by the genital femoral nerve, but it also has innervation from the pudendal, which is sacrally innervated. The buttock anatomy, of course, is very interesting. We like to blame butt pain um, on the piriformis, but if you, if you really think about it, there are multiple layers of muscle within the buttock itself. And you can see here all those layers, the top layer of the gluteal muscle, and then all the different muscles. And the poor piriformis is just one muscle group. We tend to highlight it as we talk about buttock pain in many patients because, as you can see, that sciatic nerve comes just, in most patients, inferior to that muscle group. The SI joint itself does not have any direct muscular attachments to it, but it does. the muscles do connect to the ligaments that support the sacroiliac joint. Um, the main 
uh, role of the muscles within the buttock is to absorb forces with movement. In particular, these muscles help with rotation of the hip and also extension of the hip. But interestingly, although we like to talk about sciatica and pregnancy, there was a study done back in 1991 of 800 women, pregnant women, and they found that true sciatica or sciatic neuropathy, if you will, in pregnancy only happens 1% of the time. So um, let's talk about then why it is so common that we see pain in these patients. The sciatic nerve itself is the largest and longest peripheral nerve in the human body. So there, obviously there, there, it originates from L4 uh, through S3. And as I mentioned, passes beneath the piriformis through the sciatic foramen and exits the pelvis. And then it branches at the uh, popliteal fossa into the two big nerves, the tibial and the common perineal nerves. When patients present with sciatic neuropathy, and I have had that pregnant patient, that 1% patient who presented with a true sciatic neuropathy, but very rare, they typically describe persistent numbness and tingling, they have weakness of plantar flexion, and they have a decreased ankle reflex. And that's really the key when you're trying to rule out sciatic neuropathy in these patients. Pregnant women, you can get their reflexes very easily. If they have a drop reflex, then you might be talking about true sciatic neuropathy, but the majority of time, that is not the case. I want to talk to you a little bit about what connects um, the anterior pelvis to the posterior pelvis, and that is the pelvic floor musculature. And this is an area of research of mine um, and study that I've been thinking about for a very long time. So I love this picture because it beautifully shows how the levator ani or the deep pelvic floor muscles start at the anterior pelvis. They're named for their, their origin at the pubo region and go straight back to the tailbone or the coccyx. And so because of that, a lot of people have looked at, well, then how could this potentially impact the sacroiliac? joint. And this was a really interesting study done out of the Netherlands where they took the pelvic floor muscles out of both male and female cadavers and they replaced them with springs. And then they tightened the springs to sort of mimic the action of a contraction of those muscles. And they were able to show that actually only in the women did the sacroiliac joint stiffen. So the, the idea was that this provided some biomechanical um, evidence for the idea that the muscles actually contract and support um, and support and provide support to the sacroiliac joint itself. Um, the pelvic floor muscles are comprised of two different types of muscles, if you remember, so the slow twitch and fast twitch. The slow twitch are the endurance fibers, and that's because those muscles have to be on or contracted all the time to maintain continence. We also need those fast twitch fibers, though, the ones that when we suddenly stand up or cough or sneeze that react to make sure, again, that we maintain continence. But these muscles, as was previously mentioned, they also uh, provide support to the pelvic viscera. They are muscles that are involved in sexual appreciation. And as previously described, they are muscles like any other muscle in the human body that can be a source of pain. And one of the things that I like to always bring up is that these muscles are really the floor of the core. And that's why it's relevant as we talk about how they support the sacroiliac joint and the lumbar spine. In fact, there was some research and there's some papers here that looked at when people take a step, it's the pelvic floor muscles that kick in first actually to support the lumbar spine. So let's talk more specifically about pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy, and it depends on what study you read. I defined for you the pelvic girdle itself. If you look at studies where um, they actually included a physical exam to make this diagnosis, the prevalence in this one study of about 1,300 women was 20 to 23% of pregnant women had this with a proven physical exam. But if you actually include the lumbar spine, the prevalence ranges anywhere from 50 to 75% of pregnant women present with some form of pelvic girdle pain or lumbar pain. 
And interestingly, there's been a lot of studies that have looked at risk factors for this. And a history of low back pain or pelvic pain of any kind is the single greatest risk factor. So whether it happened in a prior pregnancy or not, if a patient has that history, that's the single greatest risk factor. And they've looked at things like contraceptive use and even uh, BMI. And those things did not correlate with, with pelvic girdle pain. The sad thing is that these women, when they present, about 25% of them go on to have persistent postpartum pain. So earlier we talked about this transition from acute to chronic. When these women are presenting, they have acute pain. This is our window of opportunity to make a difference, knock the pain out, if you will, to prevent the, the uh, progression to chronic pain. And I'll show you how we can do that uh, with some good evidence. The women who do go on to chronic pain, as you would imagine, those are typically the women who have more severe pain, more diffuse pain. It's not just in their sacroiliac joint. It's in both joints it's, and also the pubic symphysis. Another study showed that, interestingly, the women who went on to C-section, this is a large retrospective cohort study of 10,000 women, the C-section patients were more likely to have persistent pain. So we can talk a little bit about why that might be the case. And women for years were told, well, maybe your persistent pain is due to breastfeeding. And that same cohort of women was studied, and there was no association with breastfeeding and pelvic girdle pain. So not something we should be telling our patients to stop. The other important point, and this is from a very old study, but it always makes me sad, that about 20% of women with severe pain actually avoided a future pregnancy uh, due to the fear of ongoing pain or pain that would recur. And so I think it's really our job to treat these women now so that we don't have these other statistics. If we think about the etiology, so many of us tell patients, well, the reason you have pain is because you have relaxin. Relaxin being a hormone that's produced in pregnancy that makes naturally the ligaments loose so that you can vaginally deliver. We know that relaxin um, actually starts early on in pregnancy. It peaks at about 17 weeks, which interestingly is the most common time pregnant women present with pain dips down a little bit um, as we move into third trimester, sudden increase at the time of labor and delivery, but goes well back to normal about three days postpartum. So um, the thing that I always say to uh, my students and to others, including the patients, is that all pregnant women have relaxin, but not all pregnant patients have pain. And so that certainly can't be the only cause. And in fact, people have looked at this. Um, they've looked at associations between higher serum levels of relaxin and pelvic girdle pain, and there was no evidence uh, for that association in, in the, the research that's been done. So many of us think that maybe it's that you have this natural hormonal milieu um, ligamentous laxity, and so it's sort of a, a, a moment in time where you can be predisposed then to a mechanical or musculoskeletal injury. That being a strain, if you will, or inflammation perhaps at the joint, at the ligamentous structures that surround the joint, or perhaps even the muscles themselves strain. There's a little bit of evidence that's starting to look at perhaps there's an acute bony change that's occurring at the sacrum itself. Inflammatory is one uh, proposed etiology. It's never been proven. One study did look at a group of women with pelvic girdle pain that had a collagen abnormality, but that study was not repeated. So again, we're still trying to figure out the why behind why pregnant women have pain. Um, we know there's a significant musculoskeletal change that naturally occurs in pregnancy. We have a natural overall weight gain, as you can see. We have a shift in the center of gravity to a more upward and forward position. We have this natural, I love this MR picture of a fetus, and then how its relation to the lumbar spine and the pelvic girdle, um, and how you have this natural lordosis that gets accentuated in pregnancy. 
And because of that, the anterior pelvis has to rotate uh, forward, and so there's uh, more rotation then of the pelvis itself on the femur. I already mentioned we have this increase in ligamentous laxity. And then we have a stretch of the abdominal muscles because of the growth of the fetus. And then um, also overactivation to maintain that center of gravity of the rector muscles of the spine. And then I always like to think that those pelvic floor muscles that are so important being the floor of the core, they actually have to, it's like doing resisted weight training the entire pregnancy, right? So they actually have to work harder to, to maintain continence and to hold the pelvic viscera. <laughs> And then the other way I like to think of it is that in rehabilitation, we talk a lot about the kinetic chain and how the core itself is the middle of the human kinetic chain and really serves as a link um, between the upper and lower extremities to allow for transfer of energy as we move. But if you think about it, we've got this beautiful baby that's taking up that core. So that transfer of energy, of course, is different. The kinetic chain is disrupted from its natural course. And then I, I like to think that labor and delivery, although it's, it's, our, it's our end game, it's our goal, is more disruption of the core. And really, there's kind of no way out of it. You're either going to have disruption of the pelvic floor muscles or disruption of the abdominal core from a cesarean section. And if you look at the work of um, our colleagues at University of Michigan, where Dr. Asani is from, Dr. Delancey actually did a beautiful biomechanical model with the engineers there. And it was very cool. This is just to reference. This is the pubic symphysis. This ball here is representing the fetal head. Um, and this is actually the, the anus itself. And then this is the fetal head kind of coming out of the vagina. These um, lines represent the pelvic floor muscles. And what these uh, researchers were able to show is that the pelvic floor muscles naturally have to stretch three times their normal length to support a vaginal delivery. So significant biomechanical change that just naturally occurs. And as a result, as you can imagine, those muscles often tear. And we're not talking about the third and fourth degree tears that happen at the transverse perineal region. We're actually talking about tearing of the deeper layer of muscle. What they have coined at University of Michigan is levator ani avulsion. And this is an MR picture showing that. So this is the pubic body, the urethra, the vagina, and then the rectum. And then these muscles on either side are described as the levator plate, mainly the pubococcygeus being the most important muscle that seems to get torn. And on the right-hand side is a view of the muscles in complete avulsion bilaterally. This occurs, uh, their research shows it occurs in about 20% of first-time moms. So um, it can be, within that 20%, it can be unilateral, bilateral, partial, or full. But these, these muscle injuries do not get repaired. These researchers have shown that this results in prolapse and incontinence later in life, but no one has actually looked at the association with ongoing pain. And that's something that we're doing in our research. So pelvic floor, as I mentioned, um, coactivates with abdominal and other core muscles during voluntary exercise to maintain the lumbopelvic stability. And we've been able to show um, from other work that more upright seated postures, we can recruit the pelvic floor muscles better. And then another beautiful study looked at, okay, of the women who had persistent postpartum, either low back or pelvic girdle pain, how many of them had abnormalities of their pelvic floor muscles? And interestingly, about 50% of this group had problems with contraction and relaxation of the muscles. So keep in mind um, that this may be a target for us as we think about persistent pelvic girdle pain after delivery. This is a study that I did in pregnancy where I took women who just had SI joint pain and then also pregnant women that did not have pain. And I, I did pelvic floor muscle exams on them. 
And what I found was that all, almost all the women who had SI joint pain had tenderness of the muscles. That prior uh, investigator showed that they had problems with contract and relax. But this is the first time that we were able to show that those muscles are diffusely tender in the women who are actually presenting with SI joint pain. So in my mind, it's sort of maybe they're abnormal before we're even going into labor and delivery, and that might be an opportunity for us in terms of treatment. We also were able to show that the women who had pelvic girdle pain were more likely to have urinary incontinence even after we controlled for pelvic floor muscle strength or how well they could do a Kegel contraction. So um, again, a correlation between incontinence and pain. In, in the postpartum period, I already described um, what happens in pregnancy musculoskeletally, but there's a lot of changes that persist, even in the women who may not necessarily have pain. And what we see, in addition to these pelvic floor muscle defects, um, we also see commonly this rectus um, abdominis diastasis. I don't know if you can see sort of the tenting of the muscles. So not a true hernia, but a split of the rectus abdominis. We also know that there's a lot of scar that will affect the muscle activity, so both perineal scar and abdominal scar. Um, we'll typically see um, persistent pelvic obliquity, or that's where they have ongoing asymmetry of that pelvic girdle. And as a result, decreased core strength, impaired ability um, to do load transfer, we call it in rehabilitation, which is just their ability to perform a task. And then, as you can remember and imagine with your patients, with breastfeeding, we already have this bad posture, and a lot of them um, tend to have just kyphosis in addition to all these other things that are going on in the pelvis. So as I'm thinking, you know, although I've already kind of tipped you off that SI joint pain is probably the number one diagnosis we see in pregnancy um, and postpartum, there is a wide differential that we consider in these patients. So although I'm going in with the evidence that SI joint pain is the most likely, I have to rule out all these other things. So um, not only could the pelvic floor be involved in terms of myofascial pain, but multiple other muscles tend to be either dyssynergic or tender when we examine these women, especially muscles like the iliopsoas, the adductors, the piriformis, as I previously mentioned. In addition to that, we see, you know, when women come into pregnancy with lots of other things, and we're seeing women who are, are a bit older now um, that are pregnant. And so lumbar degenerative disc disease is something we're always trying to rule out. Any hip pathology... If a patient is not getting better with SI joint pain, we're always considering a potential stress or insufficiency fracture. Um, neurologically, we, we can get patients that do have radiculopathies, plexopathies, and true peripheral neuropathies in pregnancy, but again, very rare. And as Dr. Asani mentioned in her previous lecture, many of these pregnant women you know, have prior history of visceral pain conditions, so endometriosis, irritable bowel, uh, painful bladder, so maybe they already have an abnormal pelvic floor from these previous diagnoses. So how will your patient present? So most commonly, as I mentioned, they present in the second trimester. That's um, from gestational week 13 to 28. The greatest risk factor, I told you, is they'll tell you, oh, yeah, I, I did have a, an old uh, injury, back injury at work, or yes, in my last pregnancy, I had pain. They classically describe that when I go from a sit to a stand or I go to get out of the car or I turn in bed, that's when I have the majority of my pain. They prefer to sit off their affected side. And radiating leg pain is common, and that's why they all call it sciatica. And even this is a study I wanted to show you where we looked at referral patterns of the sacroiliac joint. 
And the sacroiliac joint refers in the same distribution as the sciatic nerve. Yet, the great majority of patients have normal neurologic exam, but yet findings consistent with sacroiliac joint pain. These are the tests that we do to rule in pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy. These tests are well-validated, and they actually have high sensitivity and specificity, and they're very easy to learn. The single best one to probably do, if you had to learn one, is called the posterior pelvic pain provocation test, or the P4 test. This is similar to those of you who do this as an AP glide. What I'm doing here is I'm actually taking the pregnant patient, I'm taking her hip, and I'm bringing it into hip flexion, and then a bit of knee flexion. I'm using the weight of my body to press down in an anterior to posterior direction. And the patient will say, I have, oh yes, I have pain in my buttock. A lot of times they'll say it's their hip, even though we know it's not their hip itself, it's more the sacroiliac joint. This test is called the Patrick's Faber test, or sometimes describes as Faber's alone or forced Faber's. And on this side, I'm taking the hip into external rotation, a little bit of flexion, and providing counter pressure to the anterior pelvis, so pressing down on both sides. And the patient in this test, a positive test, could be pain anywhere in the pelvis. Could be posterior, anterior, but that's a positive test. Now, the modified Trendelenburg test I don't have a picture of, but it's a very simple way to provoke the SI joint, and it's simply having your patient, or sorry, to provoke the pubic symphysis. Have her stand on one leg, and if she says she has pain in the pubic symphysis, that's a positive test. In terms of palpation tests, there are really only two you need to do in pregnancy and postpartum. These are the two that have been validated. So... When you're examining a patient posteriorly and you feel for the posterior superior iliac spine here, you go just below it, and that's the long dorsal ligament, also known as the posterior SI ligament. You press right there, and the patient will say yes or no to tenderness. In addition, we do pubic symphysis tenderness that's well-validated for those women who have anterior pain. And then finally, a well-described test called the active straight leg test is a, is a test of um, difficulty. So it's been shown to be abnormal in women with pelvic girdle pain. They lift up their leg, they say it's hard to do, and then I provide compression and they say it's easier. Um, it's a really great test and actually to show them that with that compression or with that support, they can immediately get a little bit of relief. We do do pelvic floor muscle exams, rarely in pregnancy, I'll tell you, because there's really no study that's looked at pelvic floor physical therapy in pregnancy in terms of safety and tolerability and even efficacy. And I think many people are just so worried, as you know, in this vulnerable population, doing anything that could potentially bring on labor, that this is not yet studied. So the majority of our pelvic floor muscle exams are done in the immediate postpartum period, usually at that six-week mark when they come in. We can do uh, vaginal and rectal exams to be most thorough. We assess for tenderness, the quality and coordination of the contraction and relaxation, how they can do it voluntarily, and then also involuntarily with cough, sneeze, with Valsalva. There are multiple strength scales. Um, in clinic, we tend to use the easy one called the modified Oxford scale, and this is very similar to our manual muscle strength testing. So if a patient can do a squeeze and a lift, that's a three out of five strength, just like anti-gravity strength. So it's a really easy scale.
We use the pelvic clock to describe where there are abnormalities on the postpartum exam. But in general, women who have pelvic pain, whether it's pelvic girdle or pelvic floor muscle pain, they will have poor relaxation of the muscles and tenderness diffusely. And so telling them to do Kegels or Kegel contraction is, is really sort of the opposite of what they need in that immediate period. They need to learn relaxation before they can move on to full contraction. Um, there are lots of different outcome measures, as you know, that we use in, in pain management. But specific to pregnancy and postpartum, that's, there's one that's been highly validated for this condition. And it was um, designed and then validated uh, by my colleague in Norway, Britt Stuckey, who's a PT-PhD. It's uh, described as a condition-specific measure for women with pelvic girdle pain. And what's nice about it is that it has items on there relating to activity and participation as well as bodily symptoms. So it's not just a, you know, a VAS, what's your pain score? It's actually kind of how, how hard is it for you to do these tasks? So it gets at that movement or musculoskeletally based pain. Uh, it's been shown to be uh, reliable, valid, and feasible, not just for clinical practice, but for research. And the responsiveness of it was pretty high. And they've even been able to figure out with this the minimally clinically important difference. So a score smaller than 25 for the total score and the activity subscale score and a, a change score of 20 for the symptom subscale should be regarded as um, insignificant in patients who have pelvis. So sort of there's ways for us to say, how disabled are you? And this, this questionnaire allows you to do that with women who have pelvic girdle pain. Um, so other things that I do, you know, I, of course I don't get radiographs in pregnancy unless there's been uh, trauma, and I typically work with orth my orthopedic colleagues to make the decision. Um, but um, we usually only do it um, if we're concerned about a few things. So one would be symphysial separation. Lots of, I just want to highlight that lots of pregnant women, when they have pubic pain, they're told they have a separation, but actually it's, um, it's not been shown in pregnancy unless there's been a fall um, so, or some type of trauma. So this is really a postpartum diagnosis. Um, and I've seen about 15 cases. There are only case reports describing this, so we don't know what the true prevalence is. Um, it's defined as the, a separation beyond one centimeter of the pubic symphysis, and it can be diagnosed, obviously, on plain X-ray. These women tend to develop over time osteitis pubis or arthritis of the joint. So sometimes if women will come in and tell me their pain started in pregnancy, now they're postpartum, they have persistent pain, I'll get an x-ray just to rule out arthritis of that joint. Um, commonly also I'm looking to rule out sacroiliitis, which as you know is an inflammatory um, sacroiliac joint problem. It occurs in spondyloarthropathies, which is a completely different thing, right, than just sacroiliac joint pain. These are the women who have psoriatic arthritis, um, ankylosing spondylitis, Crohn's disease, um, or um, even uh, reactive arthritis. So there are four conditions that can lead to true inflammation or sacroiliitis, very uncommonly seen in the postpartum or pregnant population. But I need to bring it up because it's in our differential. Sometimes women, especially postpartum or if they've had a fall in pregnancy, um, they can describe coccidinia. So their pain obviously will be more posterior and they'll call it tailbone pain, posterior and inferior that is. And if there has been some trauma or a traumatic labor and delivery, so typically I'll see issues when there's been instrumentation. So if there's been a forceps or a vacuum delivery, we can um, show that there's maybe a dislocation or even potentially a fracture that's occurred. But in my experience, uh, the majority of patients just have a contusion and there are no findings on plain x-ray.
Um, and again, as I previously mentioned, we're always trying to rule out other things that women bring to the table. Um, so this is an image of a pregnant patient that actually had an L4-5 herniated disc. She was in her 40s. This is a patient that actually had a sacral insufficiency fracture that we diagnosed postpartum. We were treating her with SI joint pain. She was not getting better, and so we opted to get an MRI. Um, this is a patient who had a pubic stress fracture um, that we can also see. So MRI is really kind of our go-to imaging study. We see many patients with different um, tendinopathies on MR imaging, but what's really interesting, as we discussed before, a lot of times they won't even have tenderness in that body region. So sometimes hard to differentiate what you're seeing on exam versus what the image is telling you. Um, I wanted to bring up one condition um, that's also rare, but I've seen um, probably now about 20 cases of, called transient osteoporosis of pregnancy. This can affect most commonly the hip, where the patient gets a true edema in the femoral head and neck. Um, it can also affect the sacrum, and I think that's maybe why we're seeing more sacral insufficiency fractures. These women present in the third trimester. They're in such severe pain they cannot walk. You examine them, and their hip findings are positive, not necessarily their sacroiliac joint findings. Um, and the reason it's important to diagnose on MRI is it actually, this is one of the conditions that might actually change your decision for labor and delivery, because there have been case reports of women who had this and went on to a cult fracture at the time of delivery. Um, we can use ultrasound, and as you know, there's a, there's a huge opportunity for us in musculoskeletal medicine to use ultrasound, and what a perfect opportunity for us in pregnancy, since it's one modality that we can use. Um, we've done some studies measuring the pubic symphysis, and this is why I can tell you from my research that pubic symphysis separation is, actually does not happen in pregnancy, and the way that I've been able to show that was by actually doing ultrasound measurements and showing that the joint itself was one centimeter or less. And a lot of times what's been nice is if I get called to do a consult on a patient who's in the hospital admitted to rule out pubic symphysis separation, we can ultrasound them and do it uh, without having to do any other imaging. So um, in terms of treatment, so what do we do with these patients? In rehabilitation, we're addressing multiple biomechanical factors. Uh, we're looking at the pelvic joint mobility itself. Lots of attention paid to motor control, how muscles are firing, uh, how they're contracting and relaxing at the appropriate times, um, where your body is with positioning. So a lot of ergonomics. We do a lot, especially with pregnant women, taking care of other children, working um, with just how to move in a more symmetric and functional way. Um, and th these are some techniques that we can show um, patients through our colleagues in physical therapy how to actually do self-mobilization. So one of the things you'll find when you examine these women is not only do they have positive pelvic girdle provocation tests, but they have asymmetry. And when we teach them how to do self-mobilization or muscle energy techniques, they can have an immediate a positive response in terms of pain relief. Uh, but then we also need to teach them how to do appropriate postural alignment because we know they cannot activate their core muscles without having just appropriate neutral spine. And this ergonomic, I can't stress enough, so symmetric motion, both feet on the ground, lifting things appropriately, bending your knees with their work, their ADLs, and childcare. And then, you know, I think a misnomer is that this is not a time we can do core strengthening or uh, motor control. And, and actually, it's easy. We can do it. We can do it in lots of positions. We can do it in standing. We can do it in four-point. And this is just a, an example of how abdominal and gluteal strengthening can be done in a pregnant patient. 
So if you look at the evidence, and this is a great systematic review that was published in 2015, um, it's very, very interesting. So there's actually, in the European literature, strong evidence for acupuncture in the treatment of pelvic girdle pain. Um, we do not adopt that here in the United States, although I'm more and more I'm trying to get patients to, um, to do acupuncture for pelvic girdle pain. There's a decent amount of evidence for pelvic belts, and I'll show you some of those studies. Uh, general exercise, low evidence. So just telling a patient, oh, try to walk a little bit more um, or do some stretching exercises, that's not going to work. Um, in the pregnant population, um, specific stabilizing exercise, although there's only been one study, that's probably the best study, and I'll, I'll show you that one. It's been shown to be more helpful in the postpartum period, though. Water gymnastics, limited data, but again, aqua therapy is a good opportunity for our patients. Osteopathic manual therapy, there was one study in third trimester that showed it was superior um, uh, to just ultrasound and standard of care. Um, and then limited evidence for some of our other sort of non-pharmacologic treatments, but hopefully over time we'll build the evidence for some of these other things. Um, so the sacroiliac joint belt, I just wanted to show you a picture of it. Um, we believe, and this is just one type of, of belt that we can use. You know there are lots of different maternity belts out there. Um, we think that it provides a sense of stability via joint approximation and probably facilitates um, the core stabilizers a little bit. And studies have shown benefit in short-term use um, with improved pain and function. They're cost-effective, yet we're limited in terms of what effect they might have on the true anatomy. But I think that if, you know, if the patient's getting better, that's the main thing that we care about. So we re highly recommend this type of belt for our patients. And I came up with a recent study where, that we're recruiting for right now. So is there a test that we can do in clinic that actually predicts what patient is going to benefit from the belt the most? I mean, this belt I showed you is just one example. It's about $40 online. And so our objective in this is um, to really just show that the active straight leg raise is the test, that one I showed you where they lift their leg and I give compression, how severe they are on that test will predict how well they'll benefit from a belt. And so maybe by next year I'll have this data to present to you. Because I think it would be great if just we had a practical test to, to prove what would work best. Um, this is the study that I mentioned in postpartum women, also done by Dr. Stuge in Norway, quite a while back, where she, she actually randomized women with persistent pain postpartum to either just specific stabilization, resisted core physical therapy, or general PT without specific stabilization. And actually, she was able to show that the group that received um, the stabilization had a significant improvement that lasted, not only at one year, but at two years. So I think the type of physical therapy makes a very big difference in terms of how we treat these patients. And if you remember one thing, it's the PT that includes the, the stabilizing exercises to the core. Um, another study showed that biopsychosocial um, tr psychosocial treatment for these patients compared to physical therapy was equally as effective. So there's not a whole lot of other cognitive behavioral therapy that's been looked at in this population, but this study actually showed improvement with that compared to physical therapy. Not a single study that's looked at is cold better or is heat better. Um, deep heat obviously is contraindicated in pregnancy. No data on massage at all. So a huge opportunity to look at that in this population. And TENS has only been studied in labor and delivery. It has not been studied in pregnancy. Most of my obstetric colleagues are not in favor of using TENS in pregnancy just because we don't know the risk. 
Um, so pain medication use in pregnancy. So as you know, NSAIDs can only be used for a very short course, uh, 48 hours, which probably wouldn't help us all that much in musculoskeletal medicine, and that's because of its negative effect on the ductus arteriosus, especially in the third trimester. Um, so we can't use NSAIDs. Um, we can use muscle relaxants, interestingly. I don't know. There's been no study looking at this. There's actually not a single randomized controlled trial that's ever been done on a pain medication for pregnancy or postpartum. Um, but cyclobenzaprine is a category B, so it might help a patient with sleep at night, which is a difficult time for them. Cannot use diazepam. Uh, lidocaine patch, also category B, so we can use that or other over-the-counter lidocaine preparations. Steroids, um, category C, but most obstetricians will allow it because we use steroids for lots of other medical conditions in pregnancy asthma exacerbations, any inflammatory disease. We even use it um, to treat fetal lung, to uh, promote fetal lung maturity for women who go into premature labor. So I think there's an opportunity to really study steroids for the patients who don't respond to the non-pharmacologic treatments. And both uh, Tylenol, which we tell women to use all the time, and um, any opioid is category C in this population. And uh, really, my experience is that they both provide fairly limited benefit, although, again, not a single study to address that. Uh, in lactation um, opposite, we can use ibuprofen. And ibuprofen is prefer preferred because um, there seems to be uh, less um, effect on the fetus. And interestingly, I'm sorry, on the, on the newborn. Um, interestingly, other NSAIDs, there's a prolonged half-life of other NSAIDs. So it's not recommended to use other types. So Aleve, um, even prescription-dosed NSAIDs, we should stick with ibuprofen postpartum. Um, and then the same considerations we, we think about in pregnancy, we can use postpartum. But obviously, the opportunity for injection is, especially if the patient is an acute, still an acute pain patient, I think there's a great opportunity for us to consider injection at this time. Um, and it would be a fluoroscopically guided injection, like our other SI joint injections. Most of the time, the patient, if she's breastfeeding, does not have to pump and dump just for, for the little bit of contrast that's used. Um, and we know from the non-pregnant you know, non literature that the adverse events are minimal, that there is a good short-term relief, probably not great long-term relief. So it may be an opportunity to sort of um, allow for pain reduction so then physical therapy can be more effective is how I'll use it. We did one other study looking at pubic symphysis injections, and um, we actually, this is a very small uh, retrospective study of only 14 patients, and um, all the patients, the majority of whom were postpartum women, had immediate pain relief when we did the injection, but none of them had any long-term benefits. So typically, if a patient has persistent pubic symphysis pain, just based on the limited data that's out there, we actually don't uh, prescribe pubic symphysis injection. And then finally, um, I just wanted to bring this up because um, in our chronic pelvic pain population, of course, um, we see lots of pelvic floor myofascial pain and tenderness of the muscles in those populations. And we did this study that was cross-sectional, and we were blinded to the patient's pain status. Um, we, as we had physical therapist um, evaluators and then also uh, PM&R evaluators. And we actually found that the women with self-reported chronic pelvic pain were more likely to have pelvic floor muscle tenderness, even when we were blinded to their pain status. 
Um, and they also had lots of other positive musculoskeletal tests. So I always just say, and I know I'm preaching to the choir for the physical therapists who are in the room, but um, to really look globally, not just at the pelvic floor um, in the postpartum women, but also the external musculoskeletal exam as a target for treatment. Um, so I hope that I presented to you, and I think we're pretty good on time. We have time for questions then. That the most common pregnancy-related pelvic um, diagnosis or pain diagnosis of any kind is sacroiliac uh, joint pain, not sciatica, or meaning not sciatic neuropathy. So yes, they can have leg pain when they have SI joint pain, but it's really not the, uh, the sciatic nerve that's the issue. There are very specific physical exam tests that I presented to you that we can use to diagnose this condition. Uh, that the mainstay of treatment is probably physical therapy, maybe acupuncture if we used it a little more broadly in this country. And that the pelvic floor muscles may be a factor in persistent pelvic girdle pain. We might have an opportunity as we look towards research in that area. But I really do think that there, this is sort of a golden moment for these patients. Um, treatment during pregnancy to avoid chronic pain is, is really key. We have, you know, most of these women can go to four to six sessions of physical therapy and improve significantly. So um, I think not telling these women that this is just something, oh, you have sciatica, it'll go away, just kind of deal with it. But actually using this opportunity to treat is, is the key. So thank you so much for your attention. I'm happy to take questions. Yes. Your, uh, have your uh, interventional pain guide your radio frequency of the SI joint? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, rarely, but we do. Um, and you know, and I think that what's that? It works real well. It works really well. Yes. Yeah. It's a great opportunity, and I think a real opportunity to study in the postpartum period. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. No study that I'm aware of that's ever looked at that. Yes. Hi. Okay. Yeah. I'll come. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So yeah. Good point. Great. Excellent point. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah. So the question is on when a patient presents with pelvic floor myofascial pain or muscle pain and has hypertonus, or a lot of times we use the term overactivity or non-relaxing pelvic floor, we specifically first work on myofascial release. That's number one. Number two is deep breathing, which, which has been shown to facilitate pelvic floor muscle relaxation. And then finally, even we work on, we do a slight contraction and teach them how to do a perineal bulge, just, just really an act of relaxation. Um, so all those things kind of have to be done before we move to pelvic floor muscle strengthening, which is not unlike any other rehabilitation program, really. Um, and there is um, evidence in the painful bladder population that that type of physical therapy actually is superior just to global massage. So a randomized controlled trial showed that. It wasn't in a pregnant or postpo uh, postpartum population, but we use that data, uh, specifically 10 sessions, incorporating myofascial release, relaxation for improved pain and function. I hope that answers. I can give you the reference, too. Yes. Oh, thank you. 
Yes. Yes, yes. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And we do have a colleague um, within the International Pelvic Pain Society that is specifically looking at Ehlers-Danlos in association with chronic pelvic pain. Um, so I'm hopeful that that data will help support um, the things that we're seeing clinically. So thanks for bringing that up. It could be a real mechanism for persistent pain in our patient population. Okay, well, thank you so much for your attention. Have a great day, everybody.